0: So, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to talk about some of the cracks and the foundations of what we believe today. As many of you know, I'm currently taking a class to become a certified firefighter, and I took this class about eight years ago before I moved up here, but I wasn't able to finish it, but... Because of the way that the laws were written back then, my former fire chief said, that's fine, you've had your 60 hours, and he just granted me the position of firefighter anyway. But now that I've moved and the laws have changed a little bit, you're required to pass a class that has that 60 hours of training prior to, be, prior to um, being allowed to go inside of a burning building. Yes, you have to take a class to be certified to go inside a burning building. I think it's a class that kind of takes away your common sense, but... That's, that's just kind of uh, what is required now. So I'm taking something called ELF class. And that's not the class to become one of Santa's helpers. It means entry-level firefighter. And I'll be uh, finishing it up in the uh, middle of October here. And one of the things that I saw that changed since the first time I took this class is that there, there's there been a lot of, over the last 10 years, a lot of scientific study regarding the action and the way that fire happens inside of residences. What we have found, and I'm glad Tammy left because I was going to have her cover her ears for a moment, is because of modern furnishing and modern building practices, fires today burn much hotter and much faster than fires did even 20 years ago. And that makes firefighting, they say, to be one of the most dangerous occupations in the country, and it is five times as dangerous as it used to be to what it was 10 or even 20 years ago. And in fact, one of the people that do that does testing on this is Underwriters Laboratory. And I watched a video in class where they set up two rooms with identical dimensions, except that... And furnishings, except that one had modern building materials and modern furniture in it, and another room had older building materials and older furniture in it, and they set both on fire. They used the same model space heater next to the same kind of curtains and everything, and they set them on fire. Now, they sat back and they watched how long it took for that fire to reach something called flashover. Flashover is when everything in the room spontaneously, because of the radiant heat, bursts into flames, even the smoke, because smoke is just unburned fuel as it is, and all that bursts into flames at the same time, and temperatures within that room can reach over 1,000 degrees in that second, and nothing can survive that, not even a firefighter in full gear. So we're very careful to monitor conditions when we're in these rooms to see when flashover is about to happen. So how did our two rooms do? They found that the older construction and furniture room took 17 minutes from ignition to, flat, to flashover, and that flashover reached a maximum temperature of 859 degrees. So that's not too bad, 17 minutes. Before, from ignition to total flashover. Even here in rural Wisconsin, with volunteer fire departments, we're going to be able to get there in time and save probably the residents and people within, inside those residences if they have working smoke detectors. The newer room, however, flashed in 90 seconds to a temperature of over 1,200 degrees. In fact, the the underwriter laboratory firefighters who were standing in a room with charged hose lines in full gear had to back out of the room even while spraying water because their face pieces started to melt. It got that hot that fast. And they had to activate the building's emergency overhead fire suppression system to put that fire out because that's how hot it got. They said if that would have been like a real house that because of the modern building materials or before you would have up to 30 to 45 minutes before the roof would collapse or a fire could be within a building, now you have five with modern building construction. Because if anybody remember when that apartment building was being built down there, you saw like the different rafters they had up and the joists and they looked like a big A-frame joist. They have steel gusset plates in there that expand at 400 degrees and pop off. So the whole roof would cave in within five minutes of a fire starting in that residence. So the way we do firefighting now has to drastically change. We don't just kick in the front door and charge in anymore. We have to take a moment, evaluate, and come up with a unique strategy to attack every type of fire. So I pause the sermon for a public service announcement. Please have working smoke detectors in the house. Please check your batteries. If you have a a new house of less than 20 years old with newer furniture, you're going to have to consider different ways of getting out in that fire. Remember, 90 seconds. If this starts in the living room and you're upstairs, you're not going to be able to go out the front door. So just keep that in mind. You might have to have ladders. You might have to have different ways of getting out of that house. So that's my fire service PSA for the moment. Now, what does any of this have to do with the sermon or a Sunday morning service this morning? One of the things that most affects fire behavior is the way that the building is constructed. And all buildings have one thing in common. It's often the foundation that determines the overall strength of that building. The Apostle Paul had some thoughts about foundation and how fire of this world affects us at an individual level and the church on a corporate level. So let's look at our central verse this morning and discover how the foundation of the church will affect its behavior and the fire of the culture that it's planted in. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder, but someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survive, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can gaze into it and see the different things seasons that we are going to be living in in the coming days we thank you father that you have warned us in advance of what we will have to go through we thank you lord that your word contains secrets and and things within it that will help us survive the fire that is coming and we thank you father for the hope that your word has so that we don't have to live in fear of what is to come but we can stand victorious in you. Help us to find that as we study your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now the introduction I used today wasn't just to show you how much I'm learning in class. The way that my brain works is I can have a tendency to take even the most mundane and unrelated things and turn them into spiritual things to highlight spiritual truth. And that's what I'm doing here today. And just like I noticed or noted that how we fight fire has drastically changed in the last 10 years, has anyone noticed that the conditions that we live in as Christians has changed over the last 20 years? Or how about the last 10 or even the last five years? Have the conditions that we now face in living our faith changed at all? I think they have. Has the fire of our culture changed to the point that it has impacted the way that we do church? Has the flame of political correctness caused us to disengage from our world and hide inside our little Christian bubbles? Has the heat of persecution made us reevaluate how we live our faith in public? Has the heat caused us to remain silent when the Holy Spirit would have us speak? Has it called into question the very standard that we live by? So this morning I want to clarify some foundational truths so that we can stand in this day where the fires of compromise are raging around us. The first thing I want to talk about is our foundation. What is our foundation? Well, our foundation is the Bible. The Bible is our authoritative and foundational rule of faith and conduct. It is that period. Is it any wonder why today that the central attacks are are centered around the authority of God's revealed word to us? People are constantly questioning what is in the Bible and whether it is true. And the more they dig and the more they try to, to disprove it, the more they end up actually proving it. There's a question posed by King David in the Old Testament that rings just as true today as it did in his time. If the foundations be destroyed, what do the righteous do? And that is why there is such an attack on God's word today. Let's look at a few of these attacks, a few of the attacks on the foundational truths, not just from outside the church, but from within the church today. One of the biggest things that is under attack is the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Do you know that's under attack in the church today? Even at the seminary level. And it's a popular notion that's making its way through the entire evangelical world right now, and particularly among the young generations in the, in the older denominations, that Jesus died from the whole world, and that the world will be saved through him regardless of how they live their lives, regardless of if they even accepted him as Lord and Savior. It's been said that the best lie has 95% truth in it. That's the devil's language and tactic. Some truth or a majority truth mixed with a little bit of subtle error. The enemy's tactics hasn't changed. I encourage you on your own to reread Genesis 3 and the gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation of how he sits there and just tries to twist just a couple degrees off of what the truth is and make it sound good. And that's what is happening today in our culture. This belief has been made popular through a book called Love Wins by a man named Rob Bell. Rob Bell used to be a, a great author and, and expositor of truth, but he has, he has since kind of gone off into the wayside of what he believes. And right now he states that he believes that hell is not a literal place, but it's an allegory within the Bible. It's an allegory for a limited punishment that men will have to endure to be purified for heaven. It kind of ties in with the Roman Catholic belief of purgatory as that place of purification before you can go to heaven. And it's just temporary. And it's actually not a new belief, but it's one that the early church dealt with in the 4th and 5th century, and it was discarded as heresy back then, and it's just been reborn today. Remember, I always say that there's nothing new under the sun. The next step beyond that is a universalism that believes that all faiths teach basically the same thing. you got to be a good person. You have to have some good works. And if you have all of that and you live a good life, then you can have a good afterlife. I had a Unitarian pastor once tell me at a, at a pastor's meeting in Kenosha that we're all just different voices in the same choir. But that's a central belief of our younger generation, and it's even even making some inroads into ours. They create a God within their own image, and that's why when when things fall apart during a hard time in their life, that their self-created idea of God is so small and so insignificant that it can't possibly help them get through this hard time in their life. It can't help them at their time of need. You also see that they have a tendency to lead very morally sloppy, aka sinful, lives because they have this core belief in their hearts. And why is that? Because action is always preceded by belief, isn't it? If you really stop to think about that, every action we do is preceded by what we believe in our hearts. Our announcement video here about the Truth Project had a very short blurb that you might have missed, but it's a question that is very relevant to anyone who calls himself a Christian during this time of history. And listen to this question because it's very penetrating. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? Let me ask that again. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? real that question challenges every part of our lives doesn't it it questions every single belief that we have it calls to mind everything that we struggle with in life our conduct our belief our the way we do things do you believe that what you believe is really real the bible plainly teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus's own words, he said, "If you love me, you will obey my commandments." Action that does not line up with belief exposes areas in your belief in your life that you don't actually believe what this book says. Think about that for a moment as we go to our next foundational attack on the church, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's been said that in the secular it's been said in the secular media that the church in America is having a crisis of belief and for once the media got something right. Every issue facing our nation today it all boils down to its fundamental basis of what people believe is actually true. It's what it all boils down to. Do you believe what God said about marriage and sexual purity is real? Do you believe God, when he commanded us, you shall not murder, even when it comes to the unborn? Do you believe that there is no race in this world other than the human race? And skin color is just an insignificant genetic difference. Do you believe that the character of a leader, especially political leaders, is more important than their promises of comfort and safety to your narrowly politically created group? Now the real issue, do you show more concern about all the above issues than you do about the Savior you claim to love and follow? Because if you, let, if you get Jesus into your heart, into your mind, and into your spirit, all these other things become solid within you. They come car to your core. There's no struggle because of the revelation of Jesus Christ is is clear within your heart and it settles all of these arguments. And that's why I get concerned about pastors and churches getting involved in the world's political systems. Now, we have to be careful that we don't allow the world to say something like, oh, you talk about marriage, that's a political issue. You shouldn't be, no, 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 that's a moral issue. We can't let them define what a political issue is. But at the same time, I get concerned about pastors and churches getting involved in in politics of supporting political candidates and supporting movements like this. Because when the church starts to do this, we start fighting using the wrong armor. We we start fighting using the wrong weapons. We start fighting using the wrong tactics and we're on the wrong battlefield. And then we're surprised when we lose the battles because we're not fitted with the armor for that battle. We're fitted for armor that allows us to pray. We're, f- allow- we're fitted with armor that allows us to stand only in the Spirit of God. So when we try to fight the way the world does, we were going to lose because we are not equipped to do it that way. Our focus as a church is this the gospel of the kingdom. Wasn't that Jesus' central message? Is talking about the gospel of the kingdom that is coming? When the gospel message comes into the hearts and minds of all people, the rule of God will be made manifest in the hearts and minds of all people. And that begins by, through believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And that no one comes into the kingdom of Father God except through him. That's right. Amen. Once Jesus becomes Lord and Savior of your life, he brings that kingdom to bear that authoritative rule of faith and conduct found in God's word is no longer a burden to us. It is no longer God being a, a killjoy and trying to deny us things. It becomes the ultimate freedom to live in the peace and the love of God. And that's why we as a church need to be about the kingdom business and not fighting the world's wars. They're a distraction from the central issue that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That that is to be our proclamation. It's not going to come through Donald Trump. It's not going to come through Gary Johnson. It's not going to come through Hillary Clinton. It's going to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. We need to live in such a way that the phrase within the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, is the focus of our lives. Because if God's kingdom is made the most important things in our lives and made the most important thing in the lives of the people and the nations of this world, The world's problems will take care of themselves. It is all about Jesus. And that's just two things under attack in this day. However, the attack has been going on for all recorded history. Remember the the question that Satan used in the beginning to make humanity question God's word. What did he say? Did God really say? It's now being uttered even in our Bible colleges and seminaries. So let's take a look at what some of this attack looks like. The attack, number one, is purposeful. The first thing we have to realize about this attack on the church's foundation is that it is very purposeful and deliberate. We sometimes look at the different fronts of the battle that exist within our world. We look at the battle that, that questions the Bible's truth about about marriage and sexual ethics. We look, at, we look at the battle about the Bible's truth about the sanctity of life. We question the Bible's truth about holiness, or there's that, that front of the questioning the Bible's truth of Jesus being the only way. We see these all as, as unrelated and separate battles, but in reality, they're part of the same coordinated attack on the church. Paul put it like this in Ephesians 6.12, He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But listen to this, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We have this tendency to to think all these news stories and all these battles and all these wars that are going on is just some loose collection of evil spirits randomly afflicting humanity. But it's not. It's a well-coordinated attack by the kingdom of darkness. And it's led by Satan himself. It's part of a strategy that he's been working out since the fall of man. And it's speeding up in our day. The second point about this attack is that it is purposeful. And that is, a, this is the attack is person, purposeful and it is also Relentless. We mentioned in the beginning about how the foundational truths that we held sacred without doubt are being torn down at an alarming rate. And we ask ourselves: why is the attack so intense and so relentless in our day? We find some clues within God's work, or God's word, and one of the most dramatic is found in Revelation chapter 12. The apostle John is getting a prophetic view. Of the great battle between Satan's armies and Satan, or excuse me, heaven's armies and Satan's kingdom, and Satan gets cast out of heaven. There's a snippet found in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 12 that gives us some understanding of why the heat of this battle seems so intense in our days. It says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. See, the devil understands the time that we are living in. He sees within the heavenly realms, all this is coming to a culmination. That the time of grace, the season of grace in the church age is starting to come to an end. And he knows that his freedom to inflict pain and hurt upon God's prized creation, which is you and me, is coming to an end. So he comes with great wrath and great purpose because he knows his time is short. But what Satan always fails to understand is that God can take even that fire of persecution, that that flame of hardship, and use it for his own glory, and use it for the furtherance of his kingdom on this earth, and use it to even bless his people. And that's the third truth about this attack, is that God will use this attack. When we talk about the enemy and, and things that he's doing in the supernatural, it quite naturally brings into our hearts and minds kind of a sense of foreboding and fear. We kind of sit back and go, oh my gosh, Satan's going to get me. But I want to show you a different, more godly, and more biblical way to look at what's going on in our world. There are two scriptures that bring the time that we live in into more clarity for us. The first is in Daniel chapter 11. 2,600 years ago, Daniel is speaking specifically to this time. The time that the Antichrist is starting to rise. The time that he is about to come into power. And in verse 32 of Daniel 11, he says, With flattery he, meaning the Antichrist, will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. He's talking about the covenant between Israel and God. But those who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many. Although for a time they will fall by the sword to be burned or captured or plundered. And when they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Now, verse 35 is the key. Some of the wise will stumble. Wow, that's you and me. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, so that they may be purified and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at its appointed time. That's pretty deep, isn't it? You see, what that verse tells me is that God can even use our failures, even our huge failures in life, to accomplish His purpose. To mature us and turn us in to a person that reflects Jesus Christ. And it's so contrary to our way of thinking. Particularly in a, in a movement that, that treasures holiness. And it's contrary to the way that we've done church for years. We think that when somebody falls into a sin that they've permanently blown it with God and they need to be thrown out of the church. And I'm not discounting holiness or church discipline at all. I think we actually need a lot more of both. But what sometimes within the Pentecostal church, we've been way too quick to throw people out because of moral failures. When God is sitting in the background going, did you guys ever read the Gospels? Did you see who I appointed to be Jesus' disciples? I mean, look at Peter. Look at how many times he failed. He's loud, he's obnoxious, he's a bully. And yet, I I said, on that rock, I'm building my church. Matthew, he's a thief, he's a liar, he's a traitor to his own people. And yet, God called him to be one of his disciples. Simon the Zealot, do you know what Simon the Zealot was? He was a terrorist. Today, he would be part of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. He was a terrorist, and God called him to be a disciple. James and John were only worried about themselves and their position within a kingdom. They didn't care about Jesus. They only wanted to be part of the, the upper echelon of leadership. Judas stole the offerings and betrayed Jesus, and yet he was called to be a disciple. Jesus called each one of them to serve, and serve in such a way that the very foundations of the new Jerusalem are named after them, with the exception of Judas. So you don't think God can use a failure? You don't think God can use a morally compromised person? If you don't think that, you don't think that God can somehow take beauty out of ashes, then you have a very small view of God. You have a very small view of His power. The second verse I want to consider is from Revelation 19, verse 7. The setting of this verse is Jesus victorious over the realms of Satan and establishing his kingdom on earth. And there's a verse here that ties into that verse we just read in Daniel about the fire of the enemy's attack being used to purify the people of God. Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory Jesus is coming back to earth. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to her to wear. Made herself ready. That speaks of training, doesn't it? That speaks of preparation. That speaks on purposefulness on behalf of the Spirit of God, doesn't it? You're going to fail in life, but failure does not equal disqualification. It just means further training by the Spirit of God. And I never want to make light of sin or failure in our lives. Hear me, hear me that I'm not excusing failure or sin. Sin left unchecked can and will eventually cause us to fall away from God. But God will use it to humble us. He'll use it to refine us. He'll use it to prepare us to be able to stand against the assaults of the evil one and bring the greatest glory he can to our Savior, King Jesus. So I want to leave us this morning with a couple of action steps in light of what we've been talking about. In the beginning of the message, I said that the way we had to change the way that we fight fire. And that holds true to the way that we live out our Christian lives today. We need that new action plan so that we can survive and thrive in this new environment that we find ourselves in the first thing that we have to do is we have to build carefully as both a member of this church and as its pastor i want to be very careful of how i conduct myself and how i conduct the affairs of this church within this community and that's why i've been very slow and very deliberate in my leadership because of the culture we live here in Trempealeau county in general and whitehall in particular i want to make sure that whatever we build here For this church is solid and it's built according to God's plan and according to God's timing. And it's built on a solid biblical foundation. That's a good plan for the church and it's a good plan for our personal lives. The scripture that we use in 1 Corinthians 3 said that we are to build carefully and consider the foundations that we are establishing. Every action we do in life either builds upon a foundation already established Or starts a new one. So we have to be very careful how we build. Number two is that we build purposefully. Finding God's plan for our lives in our church affects how we live our lives. And it affects how we live our lives in such In that, how it spreads the kingdom of God within this community. The scriptures say without vision, the people perish. It's a critical spiritual principle that we have when we're making decisions. So I ask you, what is God's vision for you? How does this vision fit within the local church? Because that is God's way of spreading the gospels within the local church. How can God use the vision that he has given you and how can you use that vision to promote the kingdom within the community? Today we prayed for Melanie and Tammy to to be able to use the vision that they have to minister to children in in school, that that God can use that to spread the name of Jesus within the community. All these questions need firm answers if we are to live in such a way that Jesus is made famous and so that we will receive a reward when we one day stand before him. And if you're looking at me and thinking, well, I don't know what God wants me to do, wait. Wait until he tells you. Never go forward without God's leading in life. Trust me, I've done that way too many times myself. You end up in darkness and in the wrong path, and you'll have to retreat and start over again. Number three, build with an eye toward the future reward, not the earthly pleasure. This is a mistake that every one of us probably make every single day. I make it when I grab beef jerky instead of a carrot. The vision that God gives us is for his kingdom, not ours. That is, that is so important that we remember that in life. Our entire existence, once we give our lives to Jesus, is to be f- the, toward the furthering of his kingdom and not our personal comfort or enrichment. And I say this someday because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that he will judge us someday. He said he will put the fire to our works.